Lord, we come to you once again on another Sunday where we can just give you great thanks for a day of rest in you with your people. And as we gather here today, Lord, I pray that you truly would give us eyes to see where you would have us see in this passage, that you would give us ears to hear what you would have us hear, and softened hearts to the reality of your great grace and truth, so that we would come away as Easter people for the remainder of our days. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, we've seen it in bumper stickers and yard signs all over the country at times throughout the last few years. And the one phrase that sticks out to me that I can't wait for someone to just say this to me, love is love, right? Love is love. You hear that said all the time. But is that the case? Well, we're in this Easter season. We've seen those post-resurrection appearances. Last week, we saw that our Lord is a good shepherd, as I mentioned in the welcome. And this week, we're going to see what love is truly all about. The English word love can't control the weight, can't handle the weight of what the Bible uses four different ways to describe love. And what Jesus is talking about is agape, unconditional love, as he gives us this new command. And what this command is saying is that what the Bible is teaching, what we believe, our theology, is not merely an abstract. It's not some theory that's floating up in the air. No. Gospel comes among us. In Jesus Christ. Paul says to Thessalonians, when the gospel came to Thessalonica. Well, the gospel is still coming. Amen? And when the gospel came to Cleveland, when it came to the West Shore, it's like we were visited by something new. Something refreshing. And when the gospel comes in among us, it becomes a shared experience that together creates a gospel culture, a good news culture community. And the most obvious characteristic of a gospel people and the most beautiful aspect of a Christian community is also the most difficult aspect of Christian community, that the doctrine of love creates a culture of love. And I know you're thinking, well, duh, right? That's not brilliant, but it's not easy, right? Yet it's so relevant. What could be more relevant in our angry, divided nation today than a gospel culture community? I have not seen our nation divided like this since I was a little kid in the late 60s. What could be more relevant to our suffering nation that love no longer be an abstract theory, but becoming our shared experience? I don't know what the Lord wants to do with America, but I know what he wants to do with us at Christ Church. He wants to give us his love 
said that the watching world would look at us and be, is compelled to say, God is real. Jesus is real. We all fall short. <laughs> we all have good intention, and we're not that great at following through, I confess. But this passage calls us to, let's face our weaknesses, and then we can really open up to what the Lord himself can do in our lives. And love is the gift that the Lord wants to give each and every one of us today. His love for you translating to someone else. Beginning right here. Right here to someone maybe you've given up on. And by now you don't even like. You may have come here this morning with that person on your heart and mind thinking to yourself, I don't have the love that it's going to take to love them well. Well, that's why we're here, right? <laughs> Not to show off our successes, but to receive his help in our deepest defeat. That's the way Christianity works. You don't actually need yourself. All you really need is Jesus. Not Jesus plus you. No, it's all of Jesus, and he gives himself lovingly to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because as resurrection people, as people of new life, resurrected life within us, it creates a gospel culture people. Notice in verse 34, he says, just as I have loved you. How has he loved us? Through the cross? That's supremely through the cross. That's good news. And the time for you to believe that for yourself is now. And when that faith lands on a gathered people that, oh, I have loved you. And, you know, we think, we think he despises us. We think he's so disappointed in us. Just as I have loved you. Dear one, he, that culture, when we get that, creates a gospel culture that we can love one another well. How could it be otherwise? When Jesus came into our world, love came down to a level that we'd never seen before in humanity. Oh, we had heard about love before, right? You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah, we all get that intellectually, but Jesus ramps it up to another level. He takes that next step. And it's new. Jesus was a man of love like we had never seen before. And as our primary mark as his followers, therefore, is his love. We can have knowledge without Jesus. We can have morality without Jesus. But we can't love like Jesus without Jesus. But with him, moment by moment, he will prove to us that we are his disciples. And from there, the outcomes just take care of themselves. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles because we're going to look at this together today. I can think of no greater example of loving Christian community than the pilgrims who came over 
they left England because of religious persecution. They came here to America to be a city on a hill. And they miscalculated. They were aiming for Virginia. They landed in Massachusetts in the wintertime. Governor William Bradford wrote in his journal about that first winter. What was most sad, in the two or three months' time, half of the, our company died, most in January and February, being the depth of winter and lacking houses and other comforts, being infected with the scurvy and other diseases which this long voyage and their difficult condition had brought upon us, two or three people died per day during this time. Of the 100 persons we set out with, Scarcely 50 remained. And of these, in the time of our most distress, there were only six or seven healthy persons who, to their great commendation, spared no pains night or day with the abundance of toil and hazard to their own health, fetched them food, made them fires, prepared them food made for their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them. In a word, they performed all the nasty nursing duties that don't make for queasy stomachs. Right? And all of this, they did so willingly and cheerfully, he says, not begrudgingly, showing their true love for their friends and brethren, a rare example worthy to be remembered. Loving one another. And you're thinking what I'm thinking. I'm not worthy. Welcome to the club, okay? But wouldn't it be wonderful if future generations said of us not how cool Christ Church is, or how wealthy Christ Church is, or how influential Christ Church was? Rather, look at how Christ Church West Shore loved one another. You know, I imagine, you know, those six or seven people, they had no idea that the colony was hanging by a thread. I don't think it occurred to them. In fact, I know it didn't occur. They were not thinking, you know, if we can just hang in there, we're going to become the United States of America. The place where Jonathan and Sarah Edwards would suffer for the Lord. The place where Frederick Douglass would fight for freedom, the place where Elizabeth Elliot would speak for the good news of the gospel for her martyred, on behalf of her martyred husband, where a church on the west shore of Cleveland named Christ Church will raise up a generation that will stand for, gener for Jesus up to the 10th generation. No, those six or seven healthy people whose sacrifices made our historic opportunity possible, could not have foreseen how powerful that their love was. All they knew was the bucket, the mop, and the next mess of vomit. No, so it is with us. We have no idea the conditions that we're creating by the grace of God for his glory. 
the convictions that we're building into the next generation and the next generation to the 10th generation. By the power of God's love, we don't know. We don't need to know. We're not in control of this. We just need to know what our Lord tells us. That John records for us right here that describes what resurrection people, how they live. So therefore, what we learn in this passage today is the command of Christ, the example of Christ, and the promise of Christ. All right? The command of Christ, the example of Christ, and the promise of Christ. First, the commandment of Christ, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. All right? The word commandment means... This is not an option. It's a commandment. He isn't giving us a choice. Should we call ourselves Christians? Should we call ourselves followers of Christ? The word I means we're not going to have to worry about a thing because Christ has this. Jesus is involved here. Don't worry. The word Give means that he's going to give us everything that we need by his grace to carry out all that this command requires of us. He doesn't leave us out there hanging. He's the king. He's the Lord. So the natural question that this command makes of us is, have you placed yourself under his command? Have you placed yourself truly under the authority of Jesus Christ. If not, why not? And if not, why wait? Is fear of failure holding you back? Are you thinking, I've tried it. It didn't work for me. I can do the churchman thing, but that's about it. Uh, you know, well, you can let that one go. When we wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus, he comes to us and gives himself to us. Don't worry that you're a failure. He already knows that. Okay? You're in the Gene Sherman category. All right? Welcome. I say that a lot, right? I hope you get, when I say those words, the comfortable words, that I'm the greatest sinner, I believe it. Okay, Paul believed it, and any person who ever stood wearing this dress like mine believes that. <laughs> We're all failures. Get over it. He's not pinning his hopes on you. He's inviting you to come under his authority because he's waiting for you to discover that there's only more love for you in Jesus. It can work for you, not because of you, but completely because of Jesus. Every one of us here this morning can welcome the command of Christ because he will fulfill it in us. He will love us all the more with his love. That's the command. Let's follow under his reign and rule, not ours. And it's a new commandment that he gives to us. Second is his example. A new commandment I give to you, 
just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Well, that begs the question, how did Jesus love us? Well, we, we mentioned that earlier. He suffered for us. He died. As he was on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't get it. Think about that. He wasn't even mad at us. The cross is where the heart of Jesus was broken with the damnation that we deserve so that our hearts would never be broken with the damnation we deserve. Thomas Goodwin, the great English Puritan pastor, writes, Your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. In fact, his pity is increased towards you, even as the heart of a father is to his child who has some loathsome disease. I don't know about you, but this week, I think it's a pretty good bet that we all sin. Big time. But whatever pain and despair we trudged in the church this morning, as Jesus says, bring it to me. I got it. It's all upon me. All of it. I died for it all. And having died for you, I will never hold back on anything that you need. Ever. The love of Jesus is more than being nice. And so must our love be more than niceness, as I have loved you. Therefore, honestly and clearly, this love for one another is going to cost us. We can't set any limit to how far our love for one another is going to take us. He didn't set any limits. The Bible says love one another earnestly, not modestly, moderately, conveniently. No. These sacred words, as I have loved you, mean he might even give us the privilege of dying for one another. The factions in our angry nation are bent on destroying one another. But here among us, it's going to be different. Here, the differences among us actually make us love one another more. Because that's Jesus in us. D.A. Carson, that great New Testament scholar of Trinity Deerfield, writes, The church is not made up of natural friends. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income level, or anything of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him common allegiance. We're a band of enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Every hysteria, every resentment, every worldly goal is humbled here. And Jesus alone is lifted up. And that love here is the love that's coming down on us for his glory. See, we're the counterculture. It took 246 years in America to get here, but we're here now. We're not popular people. It's not cool to come to church, but here we are. We're subverting all worldly, evil walls of division that human hatred builds up. All because Jesus is here in us. That's the example of Christ. 
just as I have loved you, love one another. And third, you have, therefore, the promise of Christ in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It could also be translated if you have love among one another. See, the whole environment that's created here is an environment of unconditional love for one another. And Jesus says it's the best way to witness to our community. <laughs> it's the best way. You know, it's not going out and wearing a cross around your neck. It's not putting bumper stickers on the back of your car. It's to love one another. Yeah, we're to love others out there too. Right? We are. But loving one another in the body of Christ shows the world this new community. We are the model home of the new community that he is building that will last forever. And his love in us and among us is a prophetic sign. It's evidence that people can see right now, today. So they can come in and join us while there's still time. So our Lord, in this verse, as I read it, he gave the world the right to judge us. He gave the world the right to decide for themselves if we really are Christians or are we just all talk. If our love amounts to no more than ordinary human love, he is saying the world has the right to conclude that we're not really Christians. We might be real Christians, but no one will believe we're real Christians and no one will come and find Jesus. But as we love one another, we make it obvious that Jesus has come to town and he is hanging out with the likes of us. He welcomes everyone in. Everyone is welcome here. A great example of that type of love is the friendship between John Wesley and George Whitfield. They were part of what we know in the 18th century as the first great awakening. Now I need to tell you they were seriously flawed men. Seriously flawed. They bore great fruit for the kingdom, and God used them mightily. But I got to tell you, as much as I appreciate the Methodist movement and the Anglican church, I don't think I personally would have liked to hang out with John Wesley. He didn't seem like a lot of fun, you know? He was just short, loud, and boisterous, and bossy. Well... George Whitfield and him got into a theological debate. We'll talk about that when we get into Romans this summer. But they, they came, their agreement became so fierce, they parted ways. And so you know what happens when there's a church division, right? People take sides. And so one person walked up to Whitfield and said, hey, George, are we going to see Mr. Wesley in heaven? That's a, that's a, that takes some guts to ask that type of question. Whitfield replied, oh, I'm afraid not. Well, he's going to be so near the throne that you and I will scarcely catch a glimpse of him from where we stand. They reconciled later, 
But it was a fierce argument. But to say that only can be the love of Jesus in a disciple. That's got to be the love. And who wouldn't love to be in a church where that kind of love is present? And when we're not at our best, the love of Jesus still reigns in us. I don't think it's news to any of us here that this culture has radically changed in the last 40 years. You know, I vividly remember as a football player at W.T. Woodson High School, we had 105 guys on our varsity football team. And we all came into the gym and we knelt down with the Reverend Dr. Bill Cumby leading us in prayer. His son Judy was a cutie, but you couldn't date her. She was the pastor's daughter, you know. But Reverend Bill Cumby was personal friends with Mr. Woodson. Our school was named after him. He was 130, I swear to you, you know. But 10,000 people in this football stadium, people are helping Mr. Woodson get to the press box so he could watch his team. So there was always a motivational point that Mr. Woodson would give us before we played football. So the Reverend Cumbie would come and say, boys, I spoke to Mr. Woodson today. And he was a great motivator, Mr. Cumbie. And he would just say something, Mr. Woodson would say something like, you represent my name. You represent your families. You represent this community and all 10,000 people who are watching today. Don't leave anything on that field. Give it all and walk with your heads high. Something like that. And we all, we're starting to get fired up. And Reverend Cumbie would say, let us pray. And he would pray this eloquent prayer, not a collect, but just a, a spontaneous prayer. And he would always end the prayer in Jesus' name. And like all 17 and 18-year-old boys would do, we would all say, amen. Let's go kill him! And we're bumping heads, and it was awesome. Mm. But we didn't always say kill. There was harsher language coming out of our mouths because we were all utter pagans. But we loved Dr. Cumbie. When I caught my first touchdown, I came off the field. I'm so stoked. And who was the first person to give me a hug? Our chaplain, Dr. Cumbie. That's gone. That's gone. And that's not, all, not, not necessarily a bad thing. Why? Oh, people went to church back in my day, but they didn't all believe it. It was a thing to do. You're here at a very inconvenient time on Sunday mornings because you're a disciple of the living God. And you want to hear the gospel. Because we all need the gospel. And today, churches are looked upon with suspicion. But I can tell you this, everyone across the West Shore, with how little or how much they know about the Bible, they all connect Jesus with love. They all do. We have a historic opportunity better than my day.
So, let's receive his command. Acknowledge it. Let's follow his example of loving one another sacrificially. It's going to cost us. But as we love one another and others out there, Jesus promised, he promises us. The whole West Shore will know he's real because of this loving community. His love and power in us, that's no evil can defeat it. And they will know there is a God and his name is Jesus. And that church will shine and be a light in the darkness for generations to come. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day and for your word, Lord Jesus, of a new commandment. Lord, perhaps someone's here who hasn't fully relinquished the rule of their life over to you, and we pray that this would be the day they turn it over to you. We pray for those who have made you, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would wake us up to love one another in this sacrificial way, in a way that's compelling, gracious, and loving. And Lord, we pray that as we walk in obedience in this way, you would bring the revival that Wesley and Whitfield saw because of the way their reconciliation brought it. Lord, we ask and beg of you to do that work in our lives. And that as we walk in this new commandment, we would shine as a city on a hill. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.